Chris Brown and welcome to episode 33 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. As lockdown eases in the UK and many other parts of the world, one activity that got the green light early on was playing tennis, albeit only socially distanced singles matches rather than doubles. Wimbledon may have been cancelled this year, but with three million regular tennis players in the UK alone, the appetite for the sport remains undiminished. Now, Pluto may not be your typical sports publisher, but this spring we found ourselves in the middle of the Venn diagram between sport and radical politics, with a wonderful new book from David Berry called A People's History of Tennis. So today, David is joining us to talk about just that. And we're also joined on the panel by three other special guests. David Cohen, Investigations and Campaigns Editor and Chief Feature Writer at the London Evening Standard, Emily Bootle, Editorial Assistant at the New Statesman, and Nick van der Speck from Smashing Pink Tennis Club over in Amsterdam, Europe's largest LGBTQ plus tennis club. But before we get underway, you can, as ever, head over to plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading if you want to get the exclusive Radicals in Conversation discount on the book. Just enter the coupon code PODCAST at the checkout for 50% off. And lastly, the time has come for us to honour our Patreon patrons. These are the names of the third group of 50 excellent human beings who have all signed up to support us. Gavin McLean, Ritzwan Sabir, Mike Wendling, Nick Clare, Grit Wesser, Dan Hicks, James Baldwin, Owen Everett, Maureen Smith, Pollyanna Ruiz, James Somerville, Kush Westwood, Gavin Edwards, Zoe, Daniel Rogers, Lucio Feterra, Alexander Davis, Vicky Tippett, Edward George, Andy Wynn, David Bulk, Emily Skurra, Jackie Perinotti, Tim Schneider, Bert Rothkugel, Maudie, Martin Copson, Christopher Thomas, Eric Drott, Matthew Harrison, Danny Child, Liam O'Reilly, Thibaut Appel, James Jeffries, Imogen Richards, Shruti, Leon Seeley Huggins, Margaret Stevens, Liam, Umet Selvi, Amelia Sylvia, Charlotte Terrell, Ash, David Littlefair, Jack Allett, David Berberick, Jehan Helu, Christopher Appleby, Abdul El Kalamat, and Barbara Foley. So a big thanks to you all for your continued support and solidarity. If you're at home listening and you're not already a member, the link is patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press. Membership begins at £3 per month and benefits include free ebooks, discounts on our website, access to exclusive online content, including the unabridged version of this podcast, screen printed merchandise and much more besides. All right, on with the show. So David, David, Emily and Neek, thanks to you all so much for taking the time to be with us here today. Uh, As I say, Pluto doesn't really publish a whole lot at the intersection of history, politics and sport. But I read David Berry's new book, A People's History of Tennis, in just a couple of sittings. Um, And it's a wonderful book. And I learned a huge amount about the sport, but also about the players themselves. Not just those at the top of the game on the elite circuit, but club members, park players and enthusiasts of all stripes. And I'm assuming that everyone here today perhaps falls into one or other of these categories. Um, But as there are a few of us, I was wondering if you could maybe each quickly introduce yourselves and tell us what, if any, relationship you have to tennis, whether you play now or used to play, uh, or whether you're more interested in, say, the cultural history side of things. 
So, um, Emily, maybe you can start us off. Just say a little bit more about yourself and your interest in tennis or not, uh, as the case may be. <laughs> sure. Um, so I'm Emily Boosel. I am a journalist working at The New Statesman and I'm definitely not a tennis expert, so I will deflect any technical questions away. Last year, I wrote an article about how we speak and write about tennis um, because I'm really interested in the sort of mythology surrounding the great players, um, the idea that tennis has almost a more artistic element than maybe some other sports. Um, I noticed how players like Federer are often just shrouded in mystery, really. And because, you know, as David addresses in the book, tennis is seen as such an elite sort of middle-class sport sometimes. I wanted to look a little bit at how the way that we write and talk about it affects that. So, yeah, that's kind of my um, professional interest in tennis, I suppose, and then I, I used to play a little bit as a child. David Cohen, how about yourself? Um, well, uh, my name's David Cohen. I'm, like Emily, a journalist. I'm investigations and campaigns editor on the London Evening Standard. Also a tennis enthusiast. Like David, I played as a kid and then stopped for about 25 years and then joined the same club in North London as David plays at about five years ago. Love reading about tennis, read and enjoyed string theory, but didn't know all the lovely things that David introduced in his book. And um, particularly interested in the chapters on outsiders and the Jewish and black experience of tennis in the UK. And the question I put to David to address is this theory of tennis as a more progressive sport than the public perception suggests, which runs through the book. Did he begin with this premise and or belief, or was it something that grew and suggested itself through his research? Mm. Yeah, thanks very much, David. Uh, it's a great question, and um, hopefully David will answer that in due course. Uh, Nick, it's wonderful you've been able to join us as well. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your history with the game? Yeah, I'm Nick, Nikki. I live in Amsterdam. I started tennis only when I was uh, a big adult, around my 30s somewhere, I think, because a friend at the time played tennis, so I joined. I really liked it. And shortly after, I got involved in organizing the gay games. Uh, that was not for my level of tennis, of course, because I was only a beginner, but I happened to be an organizer. So I um, was heavily involved in the gay games that took place in 1998 in Amsterdam. And that was the first European edition of this huge international gay sports event. And when that was over, by then Amsterdam had started its first uh, and st I think still biggest gay and lesbian tennis club called Smashing Pink. And I've been a member ever since. And in the club, I'm involved in all sorts of activities, including our international yearly tournament. So I tend to say that we, uh, Smashing Pink is the only tennis club in the Netherlands that has not only lots of fun activities, but we also have a political agenda. And of course, I say that with a little you know, with a little joke. Um, but yes, I do think that is true. So I am involved in gay activism through sport. Brilliant. And lastly, David, um, obviously you're the author of this new book, but uh, tell us a little bit more about you, uh, your background and your relationship with tennis. Yes, um, I'm David Berry and I have um, took up tennis when I was, 
I think around about my early teens when I started playing with guys in my street, basically, and on the council estate and I was brought up in. I found I was actually a bit better at tennis than all, any of the other sports. <laughs> all the other sports, I was kind of um, making up the numbers. But suddenly for tennis, I got a sport that actually I could beat everybody. I was really pleased. And then that kind of encouraged me to join a tennis club, which I managed to get into. And I suppose over the years, it's been a real passion for me, but it's been at odds with the rest of my life. Somehow it's been as a tangent, you know, in terms of my working class background, the tennis club I joined was a very middle class club, like a lot of clubs. And so it was almost like it was something that my family didn't go to, something different. And then when I developed my politics and I started becoming quite radical and socialist and Marxist even, again, it felt like a bit of a dirty secret, you know, that I was actually a member of a tennis club as well. And I, I think that led to a point, although it might have been the usual thing amongst boys and girls when they are reasonably good but aren't that great, when I was about 16, 17, 18, and I just got so frustrated with the game that I just gave up and didn't play for 20 years or so, but like David was saying, until my early 40s, when I suddenly went back to the game after somebody said from the house I'd moved into that we met some neighbours, and the neighbours said, oh, do you ever play tennis? And I thought, well, I used to play tennis. Maybe it might be nice to take it up again. And it was like going right the way back to being 12 or 13 again. Suddenly all that enthusiasm and passion for the game came back and I've been playing ever since. But again, those two parts of my life, the politics and the enthusiasm for the sport, really didn't have any connection at all. The club I joined was as middle class as it was in Bracknell, Berkshire, I grew up. But then I was working at the time as a producer and director on BBC television and I took early retirement and I thought it wouldn't be nice to write about something that I really cared about. At the BBC I just made films for, I was a bit like a taxi driver or a barrister, I just made films about anything the corporation wanted me to make. Uh, and suddenly when I retired I thought why don't I start going back to writing and why don't I write about something that I really care about. And so to answer David's question, it was really a kind of an attempt right from the start to think there must be some connection here. I have this passion for radical change. I have this passion for tennis. <laughs> I'm sure they're not contradictory. I must see if I can bring it together. And as I started writing and started reading books about tennis, I'm not sure whether I was cherry picking. Perhaps I was. Um, but I was certainly interested in any kind of examples of people that were different, that were kind of radical, that were maverick or feminist or socialist. And I found an enormous amount. You know, I was quite surprised. I thought I'd have to shoehorn this into a kind of, you know. Um, but in fact, actually, the more I read, the more it seems that the thing that appealed to me about the game and the thing that appealed to me about politics, they were connected. And, and I wasn't quite sure how and why, but it did feel a very organic connection. So for the people that haven't read it, uh, the book deals with a number of strands. So it looks at the history of women in the game, uh, LGBTQ trailblazers, how race intersects with the sport as well. Uh, so we'll definitely touch on a number of these things, I'm sure, today. But just to bring things back to the very basics, uh, I suppose, before we embark on that discussion, a lot of people will be vaguely familiar with, say, the fact that Henry VIII was a fan of tennis 500 years ago. But that's not the same game that we play today. And the modern game has a lineage dating back to 1874 uh, and a major Walter Wingfield. So could you give us a brief history of the development of the sport and its origins in the modern era? 
Yes, I think um, there is real consensus now that the game was invented by a large country gentleman called Walter Wingfield as a marketing opportunity in the 1870s, as part of the Victorian sports craze. Um, Britain was at the height of empire. There's a big and growing middle class, uh, particularly an upper middle class, that were looking for things to do, entertainments, pastimes, particularly on the lawns of country houses around Britain. And lawn tennis, as um, Walter Wingfield originally called the game, was another one of those kind of commercial pastimes that um, he invented to try and make some money, effectively. Two things there, we can talk about why it became popular, but the most important things right from the start was that it was a commercial game. It was invented to make money. And so it always had that sense of kind of business opportunities, the connection with trade, the connection with empire. It was always rooted in, in that discourse. But the other most important thing was, um, at least for me, is that Wingfield always aimed it at women as well as men. Right from the very start on his tennis sets, there were pictures of women playing as men. It was seen as a country house game for women and men to play together. And that was quite revolutionary. It's difficult to explain that. But in those times, as now, most sports are played by men and women separately. Um, they simply are. I mean, you have women's football and men's football, and golf, and all those sports are played separately. But lawn tennis, right from the very start, it was owned by men and women. And that created a game that had a different culture and a different etiquette, a different way of being, if you like, a different way of performing masculinity and femininity um, that really kind of gave it that sort of radical edge. And it developed all the way through in that time. I mean, there was an attempt in the 1880s and 1890s for men to try and take over lawn tennis and relegate female tennis to a different sport. They wanted it to be a softer game and with different rules. But the early women players fought that and won and labelled the game always to be not separate but equal, to have an equal game that women and men shared uh, space. And that's my history has traced how that's happened, really, but I think that's given it a radical edge. And although it started in the 1870s as a game for the upper middle class in England, because England was an empire, it quickly spread throughout the British Isles. And then within a year or two across the world, I mean, it literally was astonishing. In 1875 and 1876, it was already been played in South America, Australia, parts of America. There was something about the game that, that seemed to connect with people uh, right from the start. And it kept on growing as a result, to the point where today I think it's one of the most popular sports in the world in terms of it being played. It's one of the most popular sports in the world in terms of it being watched. It's a game for spectators as well as kind of players. And this is a bit odd. It's one of the only sports that is purely representative in terms of the people who play, in terms of the national population. The kinds of people who play in Britain, I suspect it might be slightly different in Holland, but I'm not sure, is it's the exact proportion of people in terms of their class um, of, than any sport. Football is more working class than the population. Sports like golf are more middle class. But tennis, the people who play tennis are an exact proportion that there are in the, in, the, in the national population. So it's always had a sort of a much more kind of representative aspect to it than it's actually foreseen. And that's been throughout its history. So Nick, um, I'm keen to hear a bit more about Smashing Pink, uh, which you mentioned in your intro there, and which has been going for nearly 25 years, right? Uh, founded in, in 1996. So you've already alluded to it a bit, but could you tell us a little bit more about what it is, uh, in your view, that makes Smashing Pink distinctive from, say, just any other tennis club? 
Well, we originated from actually all the preparations that were happening leading up to the Gay Games in 1998. Hosting that big event, we needed the entire LGBT community to prepare for hosting such a big event. So a few tennis players who all were playing at, let's say, regular clubs at the time, they joined and started organizing tournaments. And out of that grew Smashing Pink as a club. Just to give you some numbers, in 98 at the Gay Games, I think we had about 1,200 LGBT and straight people playing in the Gay Games during the Gay Games tennis event. Uh, when the club started and then grew fast after the Gay Games, we had about 450 members, that is permanent members, having access to permanent courts. And that is a special situation because we rent courts 24-7. So our members can play any time of the week. And what makes us special, of course, is that at the time, Amsterdam was proud to be the gay capital of Europe. Unfortunately, those years and that, that motto is a bit um, faded out for all sorts of reasons. But um, we were very proud also to host a gay LGBT tennis club. Not so much because... LGBT tennis players weren't welcome in other clubs. We, I think we have always had a few tennis clubs in Amsterdam that have always had visible LGBT members. But it's, as many of us know, um, when you belong to any kind of minority, it is just fun to be now and then amongst yourselves. Not because we play tennis differently. That was one of the debates when we organized the gay games and we wanted to cooperate with the National Dutch Tennis League we had to explain to them how we were going to deal with men playing in skirts, wanting to beat women. That is not fair. That kind of topic we had to uh, tackle. The transgenders were not as visible as they are fortunately today. Uh, so anyway, why Smashing Pink? Why do we still exist? That's sometimes a question that we ask ourselves internally. Shouldn't we stop existing? Because that would mean that uh, LGBT tennis players uh, feel at home in any other tennis club. We still exist. We're not as big as in our glorious years. Uh, Amsterdam has grown bigger uh, geographically, so people sometimes find a, a tennis club that is close by. That's one of the reasons. Uh, yes, people do feel more at home. Uh, our Dutch tennis league, National Tennis League, has because of our debates within that league, the Dutch Tennis League tries really to promote diversity in tennis clubs, including the LGBT community. So gay activism in sports uh, and especially in tennis, I think has succeeded uh, to a certain extent, but Smashing Pink is still there and people still find it fun to play amongst ourselves. Um, and that is not only the LGBT community. We do have straight members. We have transgender members. We have a lot of people who live in Amsterdam but aren't necessarily Dutch. We have a big international gay community uh, of expats or partners of Dutch people, and they all join our club. We have quite a lot of people who used to play uh, as a kid and then quit tennis and then turn back, also because it's fun for not only the sports, but our community and the club mm. has a very hospitable name. So those are a couple of reasons uh, that we still exist. Do you think, Nikki, that there's something about tennis that is particularly attractive to the LGBTQ community? I find that a difficult question to answer. Uh, of course, I am still a big fan of tennis myself. But then I, since the gay games, we still have, I don't know, today, at least 10 big LGBT clubs in other sports. I think we have three uh, swimming clubs in Amsterdam. 
we have a squash community, we have football, rugby even. So I don't know if tennis is more attractive. I liked your explanation just now, explaining how tennis has always appealed to many people throughout society. And, and yes, I do agree, but I, I don't know if it is more attractive than other sports. One of the things I argue in my book is that the influence of um, gay men and lesbian women in particular on tennis has been enormous um, yeah. all kinds of ways, not necessarily in terms of numbers, but in terms of attitude and in terms of style. I mean, I think the kind of male, a lot of the predominant male style in, in tennis can be described as slightly fey, and that has links in this sort of gay style that's of the 20th century. And yeah. certainly the influence of lesbian women, although whether any of them are actually out lesbians or not, is, is just, you, you can't imagine tennis without it in terms of the early yeah. days. People like Lottie Dodd were arguing very strongly that women had to stop being wimps on court. They were going to go out and bash the ball as hard as men. <laughs> and that was a really, really powerful kind of image for Victorian and Edwardian women taking up tennis. It's just a shame in some ways that um, there are no out gay men in the top 500 yeah. in the world at the moment. Yeah. Still very few out, out lesbian women as well. Uh, mm. Do you have any thoughts about why that might be so? Although worldwide, probably we have uh, numbers in our favour in, in the sense that uh, LGBT rights are more respected in more countries than a couple of decades ago. At the same time, at least in already when I only speak about Amsterdam, I myself and many of my friends, we do feel less safe in certain public areas. So although our rights have been respected in many ways, public debate and public spaces aren't necessarily safer to all of us. So I'm afraid that is still a reason why yeah, the, the, the good players aren't, uh, don't feel very at ease to come out. And uh, coming back to the male-female thing, Smashing Pink has always reached out specifically to women because it's still, in my experience, anything related to gay events, whether that is uh, parties, festivals or sports, the word gay itself refers very often to man only and is being perceived as a male thing. So when we organized the Gay Games, which was a, how do you call that, a, a registered brand name, mm. we wanted in Amsterdam to call it the Gay and Lesbian Games, which wasn't authorized, not allowed. But uh, one of my responsibilities was to reach out back then already to women more than, uh, or we had a, we had more more women in the gay games in Amsterdam than participated in previous games, about forty percent. And Smashing Pink still has about forty percent of uh, of female members. But we need to reach out to them, not only to have them on board, but also to get them on the court. It's easier for men apparently to just go out uh, uh, and be public, and women tend to do so more easily when when. I know that my best friend will be there too and that I, you know, so yeah, we need to encourage women with a bit more attention to, uh, to join. Having said all this, these are all stereotypes and I usually don't like to stereotype, but um, these are, let's say, a couple of my experiences. It's not just true of gay clubs. I mean, in, our, in my, my Davis club, which is very good in terms of the amount of women uh, players, there's still, um, if I'm correct, David, I think, I think it's still about 30 35% women and 50, 65% men. And our club is a very strong club for women. So there's still a problem there, particularly on the club level of women not becoming as involved as men. And that's uh, not just true of gay clubs. 
may I ask you then, David, as far as I know, the London tournament, the, the GLTA, the Gay and Lesbian Tennis Association, so the World League, uh, your tournament in London is quite male-dominated, if not man-only. Mm. Uh, Smashing Pink, our yearly tournament, is really mixed. We have mixed events, literally, uh, meaning the mixed game is part of our tournament calendar. Uh, I have no answer to that, uh, Nikki. I don't know if Emily does. You have any thoughts on gender and tennis here? Um, well, I think what interested me in the book, David, was the shift in how people started to talk about tennis as a more physical thing. Like at, at the beginning, it was, it, it seems to me, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, it was very much intellectual, polite. It was about pluck, you, you pointed out. Um, it was about manners and raw talent and, and all these things. And it seemed to me to develop and become something a lot more technical, a lot more physical. And I know that in your chapter on LGBTQ players, you um, talked a bit about that. And I don't know how much that will have affected it, but I, d I do think the way that we frame these things must have an effect on who, who wants to play. I mean, for example, the way that Serena Williams is written about, um, she's very rarely intellectualised in the same way as um, Federer and uh, Djokovic, for example people comment a lot on her physicality. And I think, again, I'd, you know, I wouldn't like to speculate about how that affects the, the gender divide, but, um, but it does seem to me that that language is in some way gendered. And certainly racialized as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to mention, actually, what David points out is um, black players being described as having a natural athleticism or a natural talent, which implies an advantage or maybe even a laziness and yeah some of the great white players having again this this genius or something more mental than, than physical. Mm. I mean tennis has always been of course um, you know, a mental as well as a physical game which is part of its attraction I think and the images of um, Serena Williams or the things that said about Serena Williams was pretty much the same as those said about Lottie Dodd a uh, hundred years before. I mean the notion of the kind of muscular woman who was going to mm. not the ball off the court has been a very strong thing throughout, throughout tennis, although not racialized in, in the way that Serena and her sister Venus have actually seen. Um, but do you think, David, that prevents women from being described in, in a kind of more intellectual way because maybe people are surprised by their physicality? I don't think anybody could deny that women like Billie Jean King aren't very strong intellectuals. I mean, they really are. Um, Pam Shrive and all those people are, are think about the game and and the women's game in the last 30, 40 years has always seemed to me a kind of much more of an intellectual puzzle than the men's game. I mean, it's only when the Williams sisters started belting it <laughs> really hard that it started becoming a bit more like, like the men's game. I mean, Martin Amos used to say, I think, in the 1990s, he much preferred to watch women play tennis because it was much more like the kind of tennis that we all play and that the men were playing something a bit different. Um, so women's tennis has always had that sort of sense of manoeuvre around it as a game in terms of having to choose carefully where to play the ball, what kind of shots to hit and things like that, and not just simply be one of pure kind of energy and effort. I think the Williams sisters were so exciting for me because they just blasted through that. But that's actually been, you know, there have been players like that um, throughout the history of women's tennis. Uh, Alice Marvel was like that. Um, Artina Naparotolova was, was, was like that. So uh, I was thinking maybe it would be interesting to look at some of the areas where the progressive tendencies uh, and credentials that you foreground throughout the book 
have been a bit more lacking. So we've spoken about the existence of LGBTQ plus tennis clubs. Um, and there's another kind of club worth mentioning as well, to which you devote a chapter in the book. And these are Jewish tennis clubs. Right. So often these have been established in response to anti-Semitism and Jewish tennis players exclusion from different clubs, um, particularly in the early 20th century. And there's a story you mentioned as well of Wimbledon finalist Angela Buxton, who also experiences this kind of discrimination from the All England Club itself, no less. Was tennis particularly guilty of anti-Semitism and failures around race? Um, or was this just a reflection of prevailing attitudes in society more broadly? Well, it's both, I think. I've been interested in David's kind of thoughts on this, actually. It was, um, there's no doubt that uh, there was a, an extraordinary amount of anti-Semitism in tennis uh, in Britain and in America, I know, perhaps in other countries as well. I haven't got that research. But in the 1920s and 1930s, right the way up through to the 1950s as well, in the club that David and I play, Jewish players that used to turn up wanting to play in the early 1960s were told there was a very good club just down the road that would be more suited for them, a club called Chandos, which was set up especially for the Jewish community. Uh, so it was, it was very much there, uh, and that produced a this wonderful array of Jewish tennis clubs, which were kind of, I think, quite revolutionary in lots of ways uh, in terms of a community taking on hand the sport and setting up their own kind of parallel structures. But I don't know whether David has any more thoughts about this at all. I, I, th I think it's an interesting question. I had the similar sort of question as to how much of it is just reflecting societal attitudes. I do think golf was probably, I was thinking the comparison, golf was probably more discriminatory, both against black people and Jews, and maintained that discrimination for a longer time. I didn't know anything about the history of our tennis club, that it actually had once rejected Jews, nor that Chandos, which I've played at, had a Jewish history and background. And I didn't know that Jewish clubs existed in Liverpool or in, and in parts of the country. And they did seem very innovative and inventive. So I, I very much enjoyed it. I also did not realise that the swastika flew above Wimbledon. Oh, that, that wonderful story you tell about the German tennis player who was one of the top players in the world, let alone in Germany, who was excluded from the Davis Cup team. And how I think Fred Perry protested. But the rest of the tennis world sat completely silent about them being excluded just before the Nazi ideology sort of swept through Germany. So that, I found that all quite fascinating. But the, the question that actually sort of came to the fore for me was that I remember the excitement when Arthur Ashe won Wimbledon in 1975. And actually, contrary to what Emily was saying, he was portrayed as a rather cerebral winner and um, a bit contrary to Yvonne Gulligan, who had been another favourite of mine, not necessarily because she was black or a person of colour, but just the way she played, I thought, was, was so graceful and so beautiful to watch. But with Arthur Ashe, I was thinking, well, now, who is the second black Wimbledon champion? And, of course, there isn't one. And it's a long time since 1975. And it's quite amazing to me. And you make the point, David, in the book about, you say tennis represents class strata quite accurately but I think you say in the book in the case of black people both at the top level and at club level they are significantly underrepresented 
and I wonder if it's because of racism or you, I think you talk about the cost of lessons, but I wonder what your thoughts are about that and what the reason you think might be. I think it's shown in America that um, the Williams sisters have kind of produced an avalanche of young black female players. There's no doubt that the amount of kind of young black players coming through at the top level uh, in America is far, far higher than Britain. It's a whole range of them kind of emerging now. And I think this is, is, is with any kind of culture. Once you see kind of people that are a bit like you, um, then you start kind of taking up the game, you know, more seriously and things. And uh, one of the guys I interviewed from our club, David, um, in the book, we call him Big Dave, because he's very tall, is uh, from Nigeria. And he said one of the things that he thinks stops kind of black players coming to our club, we, we have some, but not very many, is that there's no images of them on the website. So he's just not seen images of people like him. And so I think at a very basic level, there's a problem of representation that people aren't seeing kind of images themselves and not being encouraged. What I can say on behalf of Smashing Pink and our experiences is many of our players feel much more welcome in our club than they ever felt in any other regular straight club. So there is definitely a sense of, call it inclusiveness, call it awareness, call it next to role modeling, huh? what you mentioned, which of course is very important, being visible for others. Um, so role modeling, yes, but also uh, having the attitude of really being open and respectful to others. And I think the actual Black Lives Matters uh, movement that is asking for our attention reminds us of even the subtle prejudices that we all may have around the other. That was David Berry, Emily Bootle, David Cohen and Nick van der Speck talking about a people's history of tennis. If you want to keep listening, the unabridged version of this and other episodes of Radicals in Conversation are available exclusive to our Patreon members, so just head over to patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press and join today from just £3 per month. We'll be back in a few weeks' time with another episode of The New Intellectuals, where host Jordan T. Camp speaks to political theorist Jody Dean, followed by another Radicals in Conversation with Max Haven and Cassie Thornton, in conversation about the new Vagabonds pamphlet series forthcoming from Pluto, revenge capitalism and reimagining healthcare for a post-pandemic future. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you soon.